It's a, it's a joy to be with you again, and uh, if, you, if you saw the terms uh, or the title that has been given to the talk tonight, I can't uh, take credit for it. I, either Raymond or Doug came up with this title, so the title is, is credit to them, Shellfish, Lamb's Blood, and the American Government. How do Christians relate to the law? That's actually a great title, uh, and I'll, I'll explain why later on, but th- you can tell that the, the direction that the talk is going and what they've asked me to do is to talk about how Christians should think about the law in the public sphere. But before you get to that question, you have to talk about how Christians relate to the law in general. And you need to understand that uh, this question is one of the most difficult theological questions uh, to, to deal with. How to relate the Old Testament Mosaic law to New Covenant believers has been a tricky thing. I mean, Christians for hundreds of years have struggled on a variety of questions related to that. And let me take, let's go to the scriptures and we'll get a a feel for why. First, let's turn to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5. Now, you know that Matthew 5 begins what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, That term is that phrase, Sermon on the Mount, is not found in the Bible. It may be written in italics above this section in your Bibles, but it's not that phrase. Do anybody know where that comes from? Who, who's the first person to call Matthew 5 to 7 the Sermon on the Mount? Augustine. So about 1,500 years ago, a, a Christian in North Africa uh, named Augustine started calling this the Sermon on the Mount, and we've called it the Sermon on the Mount uh, ever since. It makes sense, of course, because Jesus delivers it Notice verse 1, Matthew chapter 5, when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came near, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them. So the picture is deliberately of Jesus going up on a mountain like who else went up on a mountain? Moses, and Moses delivered the law to Israel at Mount Sinai, Jesus is now going up on a mountain, and interestingly, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is uh, engaging in what we call polemics, that is, theological disagreement and argument uh, amongst professing believers. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to basically say, the Pharisees, who are your main teachers, are wrong in the way that they are interpreting the law to you. Uh, Now, when we hear the word Pharisees today, almost all of us hear bad guys. Okay, they're the bad guys. Jesus and the disciples are the good guys. They're the bad guys. But if, if we had been living in Jesus' time and the word Pharisees came into our mind, we would have respected them. It would have been like somebody saying to us, well, Billy Graham and R.C. Sproul were sitting down to have a conversation, and we would think, oh, those are great guys. 
you know, they, they're about theology and they're about the gospel. Those are, those are wonderful, godly men. And I, I want to, so that, that's how people thought about the Pharisees. They thought very highly of them. And in this sermon, Jesus is going to say, however highly you may think of those men, they're wrong in the way that they're interpreting the Bible. And I'm going to tell you what the Bible actually means, how people are really meant to live. Because your teachers are not doing a good job in teaching what the Bible says. And it's very important for you to note in the Sermon on the Mount, he does not say, it is written, but I say. He says, you have heard it said, but I say. So Jesus is not pitting his teaching against Scripture. He is pitting his teaching against the misinterpretation of Scripture that they have heard from their spiritual leaders. So in, in the Sermon on the Mount, there is not one shred of criticism of the Old Testament law. Not one shred. And indeed, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, uh, or, or the exposition section of the Sermon on the Mount, where he starts walking through specific commandments. Look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 15 or 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, why would Jesus start off that way? Because people were saying that he was teaching against the law, that the law was abolished. They got that from him. We're going to find out why in just a, a few minutes. We're going to go to several passages, and we're going to come back to one, and you'll go, oh, that's, that's why they're saying that. So, he has to preface what he's going to say by saying, don't misunderstand me. Do not think that I'm about to abolish uh, the law and the prophets. Uh, I'm actually here to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a, it's a bracing word. I mean, I'm sure he had all their attention when he said that because the, the most respected religious leaders that they knew were the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, they, they were the law guys. Uh, they, they were the guys that they, they really knew the law and they taught the law and they loved the law and they were calling for, let's get back to the good old days when we were faithful to the law and Jesus is here saying, actually, if you follow them, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure eyes were wide open and ears were perked. And, okay, want to hear what you have to say about that. So, very strong statement of affirmation of the law. Now, turn later on into Matthew chapter 22 and... Jesus has just been interacting with some Sadducees in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 22. And after he dispatches the Sadducees, the Pharisees decide, 
they have some questions for him, and they sort of push uh, a lawyer forward to ask him a question. And so that lawyer comes forward in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, and says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? So he's, he's on behalf of the Pharisees. This teacher is going to test Jesus a little bit. Um, a, f- a few years ago, my provost and I, Bob Kara, had the privilege of doing a theological examination of Sinclair Ferguson. Now, you just think about that for a minute. You're going to examine Sinclair Ferguson in theology. And, and we did that for three hours. Uh, and it was like a worship service. Uh, every, even when we would lob him softball questions that he could have answered yes or no, he would give us beautifully detailed, careful, scriptural, pastoral replies. I mean, I really felt like I needed to fall on my face and worship God after getting to talk with him for three hours about God, Christ, the gospel, and the Bible, and and hear him give questions that were the result of a lifetime of learning and and discipleship. Well, these guys are going to question Jesus, and they want to hear what his take is on what the greatest commandment is. And that's the kind of things, and it's a good thing, it was, it was, that, that's a good, healthy exercise to ask one another questions about biblical and theological topics and chew them over together. It's nothing wrong with them doing that, except in this context, they're, they're probably sort of squint-eyed towards Jesus as they're asking the question. They're waiting for him to trip up on something and say something wrong instead of a wonderful mutually encouraging and edifying process where we think together about what the Bible is teaching. And I, again, if I can go back to my experience with Scottish pastors, um, Sinclair Ferguson studied with a, uh, or, or worked under the, uh, the pastorate of a man named Eric Alexander, who was the pastor of St. George's Tron Church of Scotland in Glasgow. And every time I saw Eric, he would say, he would ask me this question in some form. He would say, Ligon, where have you been grazing? And what he meant was, where have you been studying Scripture and meditating and reflecting on a particular theological truth or a passage? Because he wanted to sort of talk with me about that. It was a wonderful, edifying thing to do. And and very often the godly... uh, Presbyterian pastors that I met in Scotland in my days of studying there would have some point of the conversation we would talk about what we were reading or studying together. When the T4G guys would get together in January before the Together for the Gospel meetings from 2006 to this last year, we would, that would be one of the things that we would do. We would spend half a day talking about where we were studying in Scripture, what we were learning from that, and we would have mutual back and forth. That's a good thing to do, but they're, they're doing it a little bit squint-eyed with Jesus. What do you think the answer is to the question, what is the greatest commandment? We want to find out what you think because we really think you're against the law. We really think that you're undermining the law, and so we want to hear what you have to say about this question. And then Jesus answers, look at verses 37 and following, with with no preface, I mean, just boom, right out of his mouth. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. Interestingly, same 
portion of scripture that he cited when he was dealing with the devil. I, you know, I wonder if he's sending a subtle hint here back to the, to the lawyer. I think I'll quote the same portion of scripture that I quoted from when I was dealing with Satan in the wilderness. Uh, without any Without any preface, just boom, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Now, in that, Jesus is really summarizing the first four commandments of the law. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not worship God through images of your own making. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall honor the the day of the Lord, uh, the Sabbath day. And so he summarizes the first table of the law, and he says this is the, the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. Notice he doesn't stop there. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now there he's quoting from Leviticus 19. So it's interesting, he doesn't go to Exodus 20 or to Deuteronomy 5 where the Ten Commandments are given, but he goes to two passages that elaborate and summarize the two tables of the law, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And notice he puts them together He goes on to say, look at verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, it's a remarkable answer. And it was particularly remarkable because the Pharisees made a great pretense of caring about the first commandment while they neglected the second great commandment. And that, that happens even today. You can run into people that are very, very externally, um, obviously uh, pious about first table, t- table commands, but who treat people terribly. You can find them on Twitter 24-7. Okay? You know, I'm the God honorer, and I slander, mock, and deride human beings made in his image 24-7. So it's interesting that Jesus ties both of those things together because he's reminding you, you can't keep the first table while you're breaking the second table. And you can't keep the second table while you're breaking the first table. They're tied together. You have to love God and love your neighbor. Those things go together. It's an amazing answer. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, okay, you want to know what's most important morally speaking? Love God with your whole being. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Remarkable answer. And it does not vary one iota from the teaching of Moses. In fact, it is a direct citation of the teaching of Moses. So there's not, there is not, you couldn't slide a credit card between Moses and Jesus. Uh, on, on that particular moral formulation, okay? Now, t- turn forward to, uh, let's, let's go to an apostle. Let's look at um, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is addressing what was already a, a vexed issue in the time of New Testament Christianity, and that is the, the issue of righteousness and obedience to the law. And uh, as he's writing to Timothy, he's having to deal with people who he calls teachers of the law, even though they don't understand what they're talking about. That's, that he uses that phrase in verse 7, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Teachers of the law, even though they don't understand what they're talking about. And then he has to pause and say this, but I'm not criticizing the law. These are teachers of the law who don't know what they're talking about, but I'm not criticizing the law. It's just like Jesus. Look at verse 8. And by the way, the, the more I read Paul, if, if uh, Raymond will know this because he's done New Testament theology and New Testament biblical studies at a greater depth than I ever have. But um, in New Testament studies, especially New Testament studies uh, influenced by liberal scholarship, there will attempt to be a wedge driven between Jesus and Paul. And uh, Paul will be said to be the inventor of Christianity. And, uh, and he invents Christianity by deviating and developing uh, theologically in ways uh, that are distinct from Jesus' exposition. Uh, but the more I study Paul, the more I have decided he was a wholesale plagiarist. Uh, I mean... Every, everywhere I look at Paul, it's just Jesus, 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 Jesus. Um, think of this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, where Paul makes his famous statement about Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration. Now, that's a lot of words in English. It's actually only three words in Greek, pasa, graphe, theopneustos. All Scripture, God breathed is as close as I can get to it in, in English, in sort of two words and then a hyphenated English word. That statement, a very important statement about Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired or given by inspiration or breathed out from the mouth of God, I think Paul actually gets from Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. In responding to Satan, you remember Jesus says at one point, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, listen to this, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now listen to Paul. Pasa, graphe, theopneusos. All scripture, God breathed. Every, all. Scripture, word. God breathed. That proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul's just paraphrasing Jesus. And Paul does this all the time. I think he's doing that right here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He, notice what he says, verse 8. We know that the law is good. Nothing wrong with the law. Law is not the problem. Sin's the problem. Law is not the problem. The law is good. If one uses it lawfully. Right? You can, you can twist the law and then it becomes a problem. And then what he, 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 he rifles this off, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, 
for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That is a fascinating statement. Now notice what he just said. He basically, in a series of words and phrases, he recaps the Ten Commandments. You know, you can, you can clearly see, for instance, in this language, for the ungodly and sinners, that's a violation of you shall worship one God, you shall have no other gods before me. For the unholy and profane, you shall not profane the name of the Lord your God. Those who kill their fathers and mothers, honor your father and mothers. Um, for murderers, thou shalt not murder. Immoral men and homosexuals, thou shalt not commit adultery. Kidnappers, literally man-stealers, you shall not steal. Um, liars and perjurers, you shall not bear false witness. And whatever is found contrary to, to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So notice what he says there, disobeying the Ten Commandments is contrary to the gospel. So he, he doesn't say, now we're Christians now, we don't have anything to do with the Ten Commandments. No, he says, breaking the Ten Commandments is contrary to the gospel. Because the gospel, he'll say in Titus, is meant to lead us to righteousness. And the, the standard of righteousness, moral behavior, expounded in the Ten Commandments, perfectly useful to Christians just like it was when it was originally given. Okay, So you have passages like this, and we could go to James as well. Let's just do that. Okay, Let's go to James. Never, never a bad thing to go to lots of Scripture. James does the same thing. Look at what James says. He's... Um, He's speaking to, and this may be the first book in the New Testament. This may be the first book written in the New Testament. So this is early, 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 like 20 years after Jesus died. And look at James chapter 2. And he's, he's already exhorted them in chapter 1 not to be merely hearers, but doers of God's word. Now, pause who does that sound like? Well, let's go back to Matthew 5 to 7 and see how many times Jesus talks about being a doer and not merely a hearer. So the, 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 you can actually put the book of James right next to the Sermon on the Mount and draw the parallels. James is in, one, in a real sense just an exposition of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over you will find James, as it were, plagiarizing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, so he's, he's talking about them being not merely hearers, but doers of the word. And he urges them in James chapter 1, verse 25, to look intently into the perfect law, which he calls the law of freedom. Now you may ask, what law is he talking about? 
Is this a new law distinct from the Old Testament law? This is a law of Christ that Jesus has uniquely and distinctively expounded, different from the Mosaic law. We'll just flip over to chapter 2. If you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Leviticus 19, ding, 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 just like Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. So what's the royal law that Christians are to look into? The same law that Jesus expounded in Matthew chapter 22 and in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. He keeps on going, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So he's happy to quote the Ten Commandments and say, now Christians, you have to obey that. <laughs> and, and if you obey one and break the other, you're still breaking the law. So, so you, you have all of these passages. In fact, you, you will find nowhere in the New Testament is there a criticism of the law itself. And then alongside of this, you run into passages like Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, turn with me there. Um, Jesus is speaking to the multitudes, and he says this, Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 7, verse 14, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of the man which goes into him that can defile him but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man now the the, the disciples are confused by this because they they're very well aware that there is a lot of stuff in the Old Testament law that says if you put it in your mouth, you're defiled. The, the dietary laws are extensive. There are clean and unclean animals. And if you put any unclean animal in your mouth, you are defiled. So his disciples are rightly, hmm. So there's nothing that I can put in my mouth that defiles me, but my defilement actually comes from within. And they... Start asking these questions. His, his disciples, look at verse 17, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you lacking under, in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? And then Mark parenthetically says, thus... He declared all foods clean. Whoa! Now, that's a change. The Mosaic Law did not say that all foods are clean. And Jesus just says, yeah, they are. I did not come to abolish the law. Not one jot or tittle of it will fail until heaven and earth passes away. 
By the way, all foods are clean. Okay, let's turn to Romans. That was, that's Jesus. Let's, Paul will do the same move on you. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, will, will tell us things like, Romans 7, 14, we know that the law is spiritual. He'll say, we know that the law is good. But then he'll say this, look at Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Hmm. So, how does that go with breaking the Ten Commandments is out of accord with the Gospel? But we died to the law and we've been released from it. Okay, this is why really smart people wrestle with and sometimes disagree about how to relate the Old Testament moral law and the law of Moses in general to the New Covenant believer. Okay, it's, it's, it takes some work. It's, it's not simple. Uh, there's a lot of material, and we've only scratched the surface of the passages in the New Testament that we would have to study to do justice to that. So, in the time that I have remaining, because I want to leave time for questions, and we're, we're supposed to end everything at 6.30, is that right? So, what I want to do is try and leave you a good bit of time for questions. Let me, let me do two things. Number one, let me give you a resource. The very best short book I have ever read on the issue of relating the Old Testament law to the believer is by a British Baptist minister named Ernest Kevin, K-E-V-A-N. Uh, in fact, one of the first conversations I had with Mark Dever was about the writings of Dr. Kevin. Uh, who was a, a, a British Baptist pastor and theologian who had written his PhD dissertation on the topic of the Puritan's view of the law. And it's a book called The Grace of Law. But, but uh, Dr. Kevin also wrote a shorter book. It's only about 100 pages. And uh, you will love to know that, blessedly, it is a synopsis of a 400-page folio volume written by the Puritan Anthony Burgess on the subject of the law and and Ernest Kevin boils it down to about 88 pages uh, in crystal clear English prose and the book is called Moral Law 
Ernest Kevin, K-E-V-A-N, moral law. Um, that, that book is just so helpful on thinking through a Christian understanding of the Old Testament law. Okay? Second thing that I, I need to tell you is this. We tend, when we hear the word law in English, to think rules, commands, statutes, regulations, right? That when, when we hear the word law, that's where I, our mind goes to. What I'm about to tell you will revolutionize the way that you read that word law in the Old Testament and in many places in the New Testament. That is not what a Hebrew thought when a Hebrew heard the word Torah. A Hebrew thought instruction. Not regulations, not commands, not stipulations, not statutes. Instruction. The fundamental meaning of the Hebrew word Torah in this context is instruction. And that, that's, that's far more expansive a thing than rules, okay? Now, of course, there are all sorts of Hebrew words for things like commands, stipulations, rules, instructions, and they did not play those things against the word Torah or in instruction. Those go along with it. It's okay for God to make commands. He created us. He's the boss. He can make commands, okay? Um, but if, if you will remember, fundamentally, law in the Old Testament means instruction. God's divine instruction for his will as to how we are to live. Okay. Third thing that you need to remember. Paul does not use the word namas. That's the Greek word that we translate into English, law. Paul does not use the word namas the same way all the time. In fact, he will use it three ways within two sentences. So you've got to, be on your, got to be on your toes when Paul starts throwing the word law around. And, and, and I think Paul does it deliberately. I think Paul is deliberately messing with Pharisees and Judaizers when he talks about the law. I, I, I promise you... He, I, I think you, you will miss what Paul is saying about the law if you don't understand he is deliberately messing with Pharisees and Judaizers. Let me give you one example. Look at Romans 5. In Romans 5, he says this glorious phrase. Verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. Okay, now, none of you are screaming and tearing your clothes right now, I notice. If you had said that in front of a Pharisee or a Judaizer, the law came in that transgression might increase, they'd have been tearing out their beard, ripping their clothes, and calling for jihad right there, okay? Uh, what do you mean God's holy, righteous, good, spiritual law came in in order that sin would increase. I think Paul is 
stand back and watch. I, he's deliberately messing with Pharisees and, and Judaizers there. Now, he has a point. He's not just saying something to say something, but he is, he is poking them in an area that he thinks is very important for them to understand, and that is, though they view themselves as the law guys, the law has actually for them become a, um, an instrument of self-delusion. They think they are keeping the law, and they're not. So actually, Jesus de uh, Paul deals with the Pharisees and the Judaizers the same way that Jesus deals with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. Uh, G Notice, never in the gospel does Jesus ever say to the Pharisees or the lawyers or the scribes, you know what your problem is? You care too much about the law. Jesus never says that. We think about the Pharisees being, man, you guys are too way uptight and you're nitpicky. Jesus never says that to them. Jesus says, you know, your problem is you're way too uptight and nitpicky about the law. His criticism is always, you're playing fast and loose with the law. The law demands far more than you are saying that it demands. You know, so he'll say, huh, you say, you shall not commit adultery. That's a good start. If, if you even look at a woman and lust for her, you've already broken the law. So he's, he's concerned for the, for, for the obedience to God all the way from the deepest motions of the heart, not just your external actions. And so... Jesus never says, you guys care too much about the law. He, he says two things to them. Number one, you're hypocrites. You, you make a big show about the law and you don't keep it yourself. And, and then usually along with that, he'll say, and your problem is especially this, you're man pleasers. You keep the law because you want people to think highly of you. So think of him in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you, where do you pray? You go out on the street corners and pray. Why? Because you want people to think you're godly. When in fact, your hearts are like a tomb with corpses in it. Okay? Um, the other thing he'll say to them is, you, you, have the, the, you, you, take, you make important things minor and minor things important. So you will tithe your mint and dill and cumin, and then you'll neglect the, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. Now, at, my wife grew a, a, a herb garden, and you know how big it was? It was like this, you know, and I realized, whoa, that's what Jesus is talking about. You know, the, uh, we, the, all the, the herbs we needed for the year, she could do in that, like that, Okay. And, and they're out there going, okay, a tenth of that would be about that. And then, oops, I forgot to love my neighbor. You know, and so I passed by the guy that was dead, or half dead, on, on the Jericho Road. But I'm going to get that, that's a tenth, I think. It's not, not a twelfth, that's a tenth, you know. And so he'll say, you, you, get, you make minor things major, and you make major things minor. You have a disproportionate understanding. And very often, 
It's they love the more ceremonial and ritual things and they neglect the moral things. And by the way, this is not new to Jesus. Jesus is riffing on the prophets. The prophets had already been saying this for hundreds of years, which is one of the reasons why he'll say to the Pharisees, you know, your fathers were the ones that killed the prophets. You hate my guts, but let me say it comes, comes to you honestly because your fathers are the ones who killed the prophets. Because I'm, I'm saying what the prophets were saying to you. You got, you know, think of Isaiah 1. You love the new moon and the solemn feasts and the assemblies, but you neglect justice and, and, and mercy. You know, that, Isaiah is saying the same thing that Jesus is saying in uh, the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in Matthew. So just remember that Paul doesn't use the word law the same way, and Paul's treatment of these issues is like Jesus' treatment of the issues. Um, now, I have seven minutes to say what the Christian relationship is to the law. Um, Christians have for 1,900 years, by and large, agreed that for us, the moral law, whether it's summarized in the Ten Commandments or in Jesus' two great commandments, is a, uh, is a good external summarization of the moral expectations of God for living life. And we also think that those principles are good for a just society. Okay? Now, why, why the shellfish thing in the American government? Because oftentimes you will hear people say things like this. Uh, you are arbitrary in your selection of certain Old Testament laws. Like if, if Christians quote Old Testament law in relation to abortion or to LGBTQIA issues, somebody will say, yeah, well, I mean, the Old Testament law also says you can't eat shellfish. So why would you be so particular about quoting the law on that but you ignore what the Old Testament says about shellfish. Well, Christians have had an answer to that for 1,900 years. This is, not, this is not something that Christians never thought about before. Christians understand that there are three aspects to the moral law found in the books that Moses wrote. There are moral laws. There are civil laws, which are applications of moral laws to specific issues in society. And there are ceremonial laws. The passage that we quoted in Matthew 7, and thus Jesus declared all foods clean, and much of the book of Hebrews is, are, are passages that explain why Christians do not observe the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. It's not just arbitrary, we decided we didn't want to. It's that the ceremonial laws fundamentally did two things. The ritual ceremonial laws of the Old Testament pointed to the once-for-all final sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and they separated believers in Israel from the world. Think about it. If you live in Palestine, and you are around a group of people of Canaanite descent who eat pork and shellfish, one of the best ways to keep you from being able to mix in with them 
is to forgid, forbid you to eat pork or shellfish. And when you're told you have to worship on the seventh day of the week, and you have to wear your beard a certain way, and suddenly everybody around you knows that you're different from them. In, in other words, the Old Testament ceremonial law was designed to make the people of God weird so that they couldn't mix in with the people around them. Now, we're still supposed to be weird, but we're supposed to be weird in a different way now. It's not, it's not in our refraining from eating pork and shellfish and wearing our beards funny or wearing a particular type of clothing which they were required to do. It is living by a different standard and a different motivation with a different goal and a different dynamic in the Christian life. We live according to God's word, not the world's whims. We live with a different motivation, not our own glory, God's glory. We live by a different dynamic, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, not pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. And we live to a different end in life. We exist to glorify and enjoy God forever, not to glorify and enjoy ourselves forever. And so uh, we have a different standard, a different dynamic, a different motivation, and a different goal. So we don't eat, we can, we can eat shellfish and pork and everything else, but we're still weird in the eyes of the world, but in a different way. And so Christians have always understood those ceremonial laws are transcended by the person and work of Christ. And that is, for instance, one reason why Christians do not uh, practice circumcision as a religious rite. Circumcision is not a religious rite for Christians. Paul will say in uh, Colossians chapter 2, if you've been baptized, you have been circumcised. Uh, that, that symbolism of circumcision has been transcended in the New Covenant uh, period by a new ordinance that the Lord has given. So Christians have always understood that the ceremonial code was not binding on them, but that the law was still good, meaning that the moral commands of the law still directed how we lived personally and gave guidance for how we ought to live together collectively and publicly. Now, what about the civil law? In our day and time, there, there, really it started in the 1970s. There was a movement called Christian Reconstruction or theonomy or theonomic reconstruction that said Christians need to work for the application of all non-ceremonial law to the modern nation state. And therefore, we ought to apply the civil law of Moses to our modern nation state. And uh, that, I, I wrote about that in the early 1990s, and, and I thought to myself, this will never be relevant again. Nobody will ever need to read this again. And then suddenly, in the last few years, I'm seeing this cropping up all over the place, and not just in Presbyterian circles, but in Baptist circles. I'm thinking, oh my. I thought that this was something so stupid that only Presbyterians could fall for it. But my Baptist friends are falling for it. What in the world is going on? This is a crazy, crazy 
thing. And so you see that around today. And I think that there, I could give you, if maybe in the Q&A, I can give you my reasons for why I think it's happening in our day and time. But it, that, that's a view that Christians have never held. That's an entirely novel view. The Reformers didn't hold this view. The Puritans didn't hold this view. The early church did not hold this view. The, the early Christians understood that the Mosaic civil law was, was originally given to Israel as a nation state. And that when the nation state of Israel came to an end in AD 70, it did not bind other nation states to its observation further than the, just the general moral principles that it might enshrine or illustrate. And interestingly, the Apostle Paul will take that ceremonial law and he will apply it not to the nation state, but to the church. Let me just give you one example. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is that passage where Paul is dealing with this horrible situation where there is a member of the church at, uh, at Corinth. And this is, if you've ever heard, if, if you ever heard Al Mohler do his thing about why in the world would you name a church Corinth Baptist Church? You know, I mean, this is like the worst church in the New Testament. Why in the world would you name it Corinth Baptist Church? Well, this guy is in an immoral sexual relationship with either his mother or his stepmother. And people in the congregation are kind of turning their head the other way and ignoring it. And Paul goes into full-on rebuke mode. And he says, look, even the pagans here in Corinth, in this notoriously wicked and sexually immoral city, know that this is wrong. How could you miss this? And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, he says this, I, I wrote, verse 11, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetousness or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I had to do with judging outsiders? Do, not, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Notice he says, I'm not talking about the society. You know, I expect the Corinthians to be immoral pagans because they are i'm talking about the church and in the church here's the rule remove the wicked man from among you well again where's he quoting from he's quoting from deuteronomy that phrase gets used in deuteronomy over and over again and where does it get used it gets used in deuteronomy when laws are being given to execute sorcerers and various other uh sinners but paul does not say executing he says excommunicating. So that Paul takes a civil law, applies it to the church, and changes the penalty. And that's how early Christians saw that if, if the nation state of Israel was the institutional form of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, what's the institutional form of the kingdom of God in the New Testament? The church. Not the nation state. Um, as wonderful as it is for nations to adopt principles from the moral law of God, our goal is not to set up an earthly institutional form of the kingdom of God in the state. 
Our goal is to see the church established in holiness, right? And so early Christians said, yeah, there are lots of things we can learn from the civil law. But our primary concern is what they have to teach us about how we live together as brothers and sisters in the church. And, um, you know, what, whatever principles we might garner for the, for the civil state, uh, that's, that's another matter. Now, let, let me say one more, and I'll, and I'll end because there are a gazillion questions that we could ask about all of this. One more thing. Both Presbyterians and Baptists have experienced what it, what it is to, uh, to have state persecution from fellow Protestant Christians. So when, when the Reformation began, the Roman Catholic Church had sway over all the nation states in Europe. And when most of the Protestant state churches were established, they broke away from the influence of Rome in their civil government, but they often set up state churches, Protestant state churches, where if you lived in Germany... You were a member of the state church. The Protestant state church was Lutheran. If you lived in Sweden, the Protestant state church was Lutheran. If you lived in England, the Protestant state church was Anglican or the Church of England, the Episcopal church. If you lived in Scotland, the Protestant state church was Presbyterian. And that experiment lasted for about 100 years, and then what, what started happening was Protestant state churches were persecuting other Protestants that were not members of those state churches. That happened to the Anabaptists very early on uh, in the days of the Reformation, but then it happened to both Presbyterians and Baptists in the United States. So in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Congregationalists were throwing Baptists and Presbyterians in jail. And in the state of New York, uh, Anglicans were throwing Baptists and Presbyterians in jail. And in the state of Virginia, Anglicans were throwing Baptists and Presbyterians in jail. And at that point, people realized, this is in the days of the colonies, you know, we, we, we better think carefully about how we apply the first table commands in a civil state. Because we don't want coercive measures in religion. We don't want anything that is going to force someone to nominally embrace what can only be embraced with any kind of sincerity and fidelity from the heart. And so Baptists and Presbyterians were very significant in developing what came to be known the principle of religious toleration, religious freedom in the culture. So even when we're thinking about applying the first table of the law, we have to be careful that we do so in a way that protects religious freedom or liberty, or else you then have the state deciding orthodoxy for you. And the state has a hard enough time being the state <laughs> without being the church, right? So uh, the, the Protestants have in general recognized that the state needs to operate in its sphere and it needs to be very careful to protect the rights of the church in its sphere. They, they mutually inform one another and ought to cooperate with one another 
But they need to be careful not to cross the bounds that are established with a different role, different mission, different job. And so all of those things are part of the way that Christians have gone about thinking about how God's law informs us personally and in society. So that's, uh, that's a good 60 minutes on that topic. I'll let you ask questions now. moment if you have a question you can go ahead and put your hand up and they're going to bring one to you excellent just take them to them Ligon, i'm going to take the liberty of asking the first question Jump uh, in. you spoke about theonomy would you just talk about why there might have been a resurgence of yeah. theonomy among baptists and presbyterians what is it that many people think theonomy gives them and why is it so attractive right now I think in the context of a society that is having trouble even defining what a woman is, answering basic questions like, when does life begin? What is right and wrong? Having a clear-cut, seemingly one-verse answer to every moral society problem is extremely appealing. And I think in that context, Many people in that relatively small community of Christian Reconstructionists have, um, have said, hey, we're, we're the Bible guys. We're, we're the ones able to stand on the Bible and give a clear, non-politically correct answer to these things. We're the brave ones. Everybody else are the mealy-mouthed compromisers. And, um, and I think a lot of people are out there looking for Boldness and clarity. Now, boldness and clarity, that's a good thing. Um, but there are problems that are more complex than just, you know, take two verses and call me in the morning. Uh, they require the application of biblical wisdom. And I've, one example you and I talked about uh, yesterday, Raymond, was in the abortion uh, issue. You know, people in United States for 50 years have worked for the legal overturning of Roe v. Wade. But in the process of working towards that, believing that abortion is murder, they have been willing to take uh, incremental steps towards a ruling of the su Supreme Court for the, uh, uh, you know, the, the legal disestablishment of abortion at the federal level. And very, very soon around the time that uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and all, of course, that did was send the issue back down to the states, and it had to be worked out at the state level, uh, people began adopting a, a public position called abortion abolition, uh, which you know, basically said, un unless, unless you are against abortion for any and every reason, and you believe in the punishment of the woman and the doctor, um, then you're a compromiser. And of course, that, had that been the strategy over the last 50 years, the Supreme Court wouldn't have overturned Roe v. Wade. It sounds like the brave position, but it's a position that actually did not do the hard work to get us to where we are now. And by the way, the hard work has to continue because there's a lot of work of persuasion in the culture. So that would be one example, Raymond. 
That's excellent. All right, so if you have a question, keep your hand up until we have one. David Calp has one. Interns, run to people just with their hands up. David, introduce yourself, and then hand that mic back, and then they're going to take you to the next person. All right. Uh, my name is David. I'm a church member here at Christ Church Westchester. Um, so uh, you've talked about this a little bit, but in terms of ceremonial law versus moral law versus laws we're supposed to keep versus laws we don't have to keep, um, how would you handle the, the – the to keep the Sabbath commands and the Ten Commandments. I forget. Right. The first yeah. yeah. Uh, you Fourth the commandment. Yeah. Um, that's the hardest of the commandments uh, because the Sabbath held dual functions under the Old Covenant. The Moses himself roots the Sabbath not in Sinai, but in Genesis 2, in creation, in the garden. Moses will say, why do we keep the Sabbath day? Because God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. And he'll also say, because God brought us out of our oppression in Egypt and set us free. So the, the Sabbath command would hit very differently for Hebrews at Mount Sinai than the way it often hits to us. A lot of times we hear Sabbath and we think, oh, that's a, that's a downer. You know, there's a bunch of stuff I can't do on Sunday. Whereas if you tell a nation of slaves, they, they have belonged to somebody else 24-7, 365. I am hereby mandating seven and a half weeks of mandatory vacation for everybody. That's going to hit a little bit differently. You know, that's, that's clearly a liberating thing for peoples whose persons and labor have belonged to somebody else. And now you're saying, Nobody can tell you to work on that day. Can we, get that, can we get that in a compensation package? <laughs> you know, that's that's awesome. Seven and a half weeks of vacation every year for slaves. So, you know, so it hits differently with us. We hear restriction, they would have heard liberation. But the the trick for us, of course, as as new covenant believers is we don't worship on Saturday. We worship on the Lord's Day. So what's up with that? The, the, uh, the argument that most Christians have made, and this is from the earliest times that Christians have reflected on the, the Sabbath day and the Lord's day, is this. That the command to worship one day in seven is a moral command. But the day is specific to the Old Covenant administration. Uh, under the Old Covenant administration, the day in seven that you were to worship was the seventh day because that was the day that God rested in the completion of the Old Covenant creation. Under the New Covenant, the reason that we are to worship on the first day is because that is the beginning of the new creation. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. And so the day is changed but the principle of the Sabbath, one day in seven, is preserved, and it is illustrated by the fact that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and uh, Acts and 1 Corinthians, every time the church is meeting, they're meeting on the Lord's Day. They're gathered together on the first day of the week. That's their term. And then by the time that the book of Revelation is written, and depending on whether you think it was written in AD 70 or in the 80, early AD 90s, um, they've already got a name for the first day of the week, and they call it the Lord's Day. 
So John will say in Revelation 1.5, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he assumes everybody knows what he's talking about. And uh, it's, it's the day that was normalized to, uh, to, to Christians often called it the first day. Sometimes they would call it the eighth day uh, and the Lord's day. And, and if you want to read a book-length treatment of this that isn't too long, Roger Beckwith and Wilfred Stott's little book, This is the Day, is a great historical and biblical overview of that issue. All right, we have a gentleman back here, and then Joseph Randall down here. Who'd you hand your mic to, Nate? All right, so Tim Garber, and then bring one up here to Joseph Randall. All the way down here, Nate, right down here. So is it me now? Yep, Okay, cool. Um, I've heard, oh, sorry, Tim Garber, I'm a deacon here. I pray for Joseph. Right. Um, So I've always heard of the trifold distinction of the law. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that I've always had a hard time with that distinction is feels subjective, like which of them are ceremonial, which of them are judicial, which of them are moral, and I feel like there's also laws where it could be a combination of moral and judicial in one law. Um, so how do you make the distinction between the different great. types of law? That's great. Um, and yeah. Number one, it is, it is a descriptive definition. In other words, uh, the, the way you go back and you identify the aspects of the law is, is you, you look at the contents and you describe them. So the command not to eat shellfish is clearly different from the command not to murder. Uh, because we're all created in the image of God, there's never a time when you should murder. Um, but the law not to eat shellfish, you have to say, now, given that Jesus says you can eat shellfish now, does that mean that there was a time that it was immoral inherently to eat shellfish and that changed? Or was there some other religious rationale for not eating shellfish that is not rooted in some permanent moral principle? So unless you think that Jesus is overturning some sort of permanent moral principle when he says, actually, you can eat shellfish now, then you say, okay, I, I, I realize there's something else going on there. And as I've already mentioned, in the ceremonial law, at every point, it always boils down to one of two things. Either it is something that points forward to the sacrifice of Christ. So the, the, the sacrifice of the bulls, the heifers, the goats, the rams, the turtle doves, etc. The book of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. Why were they offered? Because they pointed to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then interestingly, he says, notice, that Christ's sacrifice forgave the sins committed under the old covenant. Not the Old Testament ceremonial sacrifices, but Jesus' death forgave those sins. So Christ's work, Christ's death worked backwards and forwards, okay? So at that point, you realize, aha, the reason why those ceremonial uh, sacrifices were being carried out was not because they were inherently effective, but because they appointed to the one sacrifice that was inherently effective. The other way they function is, of course, to make you distinct from the culture around you so that you know that you're not them and they know that you're not you. Uh, it was a way of separation. And, of course, one of the root ideas of the Old Testament idea of holiness 
is separation, being distinct from the world and committed or devoted to God. And so all, if you just look at all of the ceremonial ordinances, they work that way. Now, you are right. There is nothing immoral in the ceremonial ordinances, and there is much moral rationale in the civil ordinances. So if we look, put the ceremonial aside, go to the moral and the civil, there is a lot of moral rationale in the civil ordinances. How do you know whether it's civil or moral? Pretty simple. If it is applied to the society, to the community, to the state, it's civil. That doesn't mean it's immoral or amoral. It, what it is, is God's divine application of eternal moral principles to a specific civil situation. Now notice that the laws will change from Exodus to Deuteronomy for the civil society. Why? Because they're nomadic in Exodus and they're settled in Palestine in Deuteronomy. And a good lawgiver takes into consideration what? The circumstances of the people that he's making the laws for. And so the application of the moral principles even changes from Exodus to Deuteronomy. Uh, now, let me, the other thing about that is this distinction is not a new distinction. The, the distinction between moral, civil, and ceremonial goes all the way back at least to Justin Martyr, who was a, an apolo a Christian apologist in the second century. And uh, so you're, you're talking very early in Christianity. Already, Christians are thinking in these categories. And again, how, why are they doing it? It's descriptive. They're watching what the New Testament does with the law. They're looking at what the law is like and for itself, and they're coming up with categorizations to help us interpret and apply the law better. So that's a short answer to a great question. There are whole books have been written on that. Uh, so it's a great question, and I'm just giving you sort of the thumbnail answer. By the way, Philip Ross has written a really good entire whole book on that question. And it's called Written with the Finger of God, I think, by Philip Ross. It was published, I think, by Christian Focus Publication. And that would be a great book to read. All right, who's my question after Joseph? All right. So before then Joseph, then what is, how does that relate to the law of Christ and then Joseph's question? So when people say, okay, the, 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 covenant, the laws are all one covenant package, yeah. is the law of Christ something else? Well, here's, you know, I'm, I'm in a room full of Baptists. And, 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 and Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 means something to Baptists, okay? That's the, that's the New Covenant passage, and that's a very important passage in Baptist theology. Let me just point out that what Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says, when the New Covenant comes, what is going to be written on your heart? The law. What law? Not a new law but the old law that was broken under the old covenant. So the law of Christ is the law of God written on the heart that they broke under the old covenant that they're not going to break under the new covenant. Joseph. Uh, Dr. Duncan, Joseph yes. Randall, I'm a pastor. 
I just want to thank you, first of all, for the lecture. Thank you for your ministry. I'm, I'm preaching through Matthew, and I often listen to your sermons. Wow. I quote extensively from you when I preach. So, <laughs> Bless uh, your congregation's heart. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Um, you, you mentioned this a couple times in your yeah. talk about how um, Christians should possibly, and, and people who are Christians in the working in the state, like William yeah. Wilberforce's, yeah. how much should they look to the civil law yeah. um, to base what they they seek after to happen in the state. So I agree with everything you said about theonomy. My question is, how much should Christians look to the civil law? And, and I'll give you an example. Um, this is a proverb that means a lot to me. Whoever uh, is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And I think there are a lot of laws in our land yeah. that are cruel, that look merciful, but yeah. they actually let offenders off. And, yeah. and I'll give you one example, and then just ask how you would you know, think about this and it's help good. me think about it. And tell me if I'm wrong, but you know we do a, a ministry in front of abortion clinics, and yeah. the number one question I get: What about rape? And I'll often answer that: Rape is evil. Rape is terrible. Execute the rapist, yeah. not the innocent child. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that w execute the rapist. Oh, well, that's what God said to do. Yeah. And God is most merciful, most yeah. loving, most gracious, more yeah. than you are. So I actually think you know. Pushing for laws that more reflect yeah. the civil law is yeah. actually gracious yeah. to women and children. Yeah. Uh, but I think some people look at me weird when I suggest that kind of thing. No, that's, that's good. And um, look, no doubt there are wonderful, enduring moral principles and applications that we can gain from studying the civil law more carefully. Um, and and it's, a, it's a hard question on you know, how to do that at every point. Let me, give you, let me give, give you an example that picks on my own people for a second. I, I come from the Southern Presbyterian tradition, and my tradition invented the theological justification for chattel slavery. And it did it by appealing to what I believe is a misinterpretation of the civil laws on slavery in the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 20 to 24. Because they went there and they saw laws on slavery, it was easy for them to, aha, slavery must be okay. Because God wouldn't be making laws on slavery if slavery weren't okay. Therefore, slavery is okay. And then there's a whole superstructure of theological argument made, based, quote-unquote, on the civil law. And I think that was a wrong reading. Um, the lesson for us is be careful when you go to the Old Testament law looking for what you want to find there. Because you may find it there when it's not there. And you know what, what I would have said is help me understand how chattel slavery loves your neighbor as yourself. And I've, you know, I've, I've had to go through a long, painful realization of this myself. I, I was born and reared in South Carolina. We started the war. Um, you know, James Henley Thornwell was from South Carolina, one of the most important Southern Presbyterians who justified chattel slavery. And, you know, the, those... Those are part, you know, many Southerners are proud of being Confederates and proud of being part of that. 
and uh, it's taken me a long time to see. So I, I do think we need to go to questions when we're looking at the civil law. We make sure we ask about our own blinders. What, what are we maybe assuming? Because I think what happened is my ancestors assumed the rightness of their economic system and the way of life, and they went trying to find justification for it in the Bible. Rather than saying, does the Bible actually undermine my justification of my economic way of life and this, this whole process of, of living? And I, and, I, and I think even if you look at the slave laws in the Book of the Covenant in Exodus 20 to 24, you'll realize, boy, this is really different. So, for instance, let me give you one example. In those slave laws in Exodus 20, 21, 22, they're in there somewhere. It's pretty, pretty soon after the Book of the Covenant starts. Right after the exposition of the Ten Commandments, Moses starts doing the applications. If you look at contemporary ancient Near Eastern slave codes, they always start with the rights of the master. Moses starts with the obligations of the master. So already there's a subversion to contemporary culture in the civil code. But then when you, when you put Leviticus 19 on top of it, and then you put the experience of, the, the, these are laws for a nation of Stand slaves. Here. Stand behind this. The, these are laws for a nation of slaves? The, okay, they are uniquely going to be sensitive to the evils of slavery because they had been enslaved for 430 years, whereas my people were the enslavers. So we're not uniquely sensitive to the evils of slavery because we were the enslavers. Um, so I, I think it's really important that it, it is good. I want to amen you for, for you know, that's a, that is going to blow people's mind. You know, I, I don't think we kill the child. I think we kill the rapist. You know, whoa, whoa, what do you mean about that? You know, um, but I also realize it, you can go to the Old Testament civil law with blinders on and try and find what you want to find. Interestingly, for instance, uh, people in the theonomic Christian reconstruction world loved laws about, for instance, stoning homosexuals. But when it came to laws about not adding field to field, the Reconstructionists tended to be, yay, capitalism, no restraints. I mean, they were into free market capitalism and Austrian economics. And when they ran into things in the civil law that seemed to think, you know, it can be a bad thing for people to have too much. Crickets. You know, and so it's an, it's an example of how we can go looking for what we're going to find and consequently blind, be blind to what's there. But I do think you, you give a, actually a very good, healthy example about how the civil law makes it clear that it's, it, the perpetrator is the one who ought to be punished here. The perp ought to be punished, not the victim. And in that sense, the child is the victim, not the perpetrator. All right, I want to guard Dr. Duncan's time. One more quick question. Yeah, Could sure. you... Could you just tell us what your mom said at the end of her life when they asked what religion or faith she was? <laughs> I, just, I thought it Just one more time since the Presbyterians are here tonight, right? <laughs> uh, my, my, my mother uh, grew up Southern Baptist, 
Okay, for, for this, I'm going to tell you two stories, actually. <laughs> my, my mother grew up Southern Baptist. She, she was from East Tennessee, from Athens, Tennessee, and uh, grew up at First Baptist Church in Athens, made a profession of faith when she was a young woman, um, graduated from college um, at the age of 19, and went on to Southern Seminary in Louisville and did a church music degree and worked in Baptist churches in North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia before going to Furman University to be a music professor. And that's where she met my dad. My dad was an eighth generation Southern Presbyterian. And uh, they met and fell in love and they, they hadn't worked out the whole Presbyterian and Baptist thing. And uh, so they actually sort of did both for a while. Uh, and then finally, in about 1962, my mother succumbed, and, uh, and I uh, started uh, attending a Presbyterian church with mom and dad uh, forever. So my, my mom was a, she was a, a Baptist for the first 30 years of her life and, and then a Presbyterian for the last 59 of her life. And when the hospice manager came to see her just a few days ago, in the course of the conversation, he said, Now, Shirley, what religion are you? And she looked up at him and she said, I'm Baptist. <laughs> and I, I said to my brothers, okay, 59 years of Presbyterianism down the drain, you know, right there. <laughs> now, okay, here's the, here's the pairing. My mom worked with a wonderful man named Dupree Rame, who for years and years was the head of the fine arts department at Furman and was the, uh, the minister of music at First Baptist Church in Greenville. And when he retired, he came to Second Presbyterian and he became our, our choir director and he loved the preaching of Paul Settle, our pastor. And one time he was at the State Baptist Convention and several of uh, his longtime Baptist minister friends said to him, Pree, we are very concerned to hear that you were attending a Presbyterian church. And Pree said, well, I was born a Baptist and I was reared a Baptist and uh, I am a Baptist and I will probably die a Baptist, but I never plan to allow that to interfere with my Christianity. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Could you all help me thank Dr. Dr. <laughs>